Welcome to yet another episode of Shortcast Over Coffee. Today, my guest is Dr. Taya Cohen. Dr. Taya Cohen is an Associate Professor of Organizational Behavior and Business Ethics at Carnegie Mellon University's Tepper School of Business. An award-winning researcher, she has published widely in top management and psychology journals. Dr. Cohen focuses her work on critical issues like honesty, ethics, negotiation, and conflict management. She was recently named one of the best 40 under 40 professors in her field. Dr. Cohen has made significant contributions in the study of moral character and ethical decision-making. Her research has been featured extensively in major media outlets like the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, BBC, NPR, and Time Magazine. In this episode, I talked to Dr. Cohen about how she got into this area of research, how she conducts her research, and the role of honest conversations in workplace, relationships, and politics. So without further ado, let's get right into it. Hello, Taya. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Uh, Taya, you research on honesty at uh, Carnegie Mellon University. And um, uh, I also thought about going the academic route uh, right after I finished my PhD. But my PhD was in engineering. And when I was thinking about applying for assistant professor positions, uh, we had to write a, a, a long statement of purpose, what our research is going to be on, uh, what are we going to bring to the university. Uh, and, you know, thinking thinking back, I feel like when it is an engineering-related subject, uh, there is a lot more concreteness in, in what we will be able to uh, write as a statement of purpose. Uh, but uh, in, in something like Honesty, uh, how did you pitch to uh, a, a university as good as Carnegie Mellon to to sort of, um, uh, you know, put put your resume across and, and make sure that they they take a note of it? Um, thank you. Yeah, thanks for, for having me on the show and um, for asking. So my background is in psychology, and I have an undergraduate degree and a PhD in social psychology. And now I'm a professor in the business school at Carnegie Mellon in the area of organizational behavior. And so um, in, in my path, I during my PhD, I was studying intergroup conflict um, and how when people interact in intergroup setting, you know, us versus them, as opposed to one-on-one, -on -one, you know, me and you, that the standards for behavior are very different. And I, that's when I started thinking about morality and ethics and, and what's the right thing to do and how do we study that. Um, and so uh, in terms of how I ended up here at Carnegie Mellon in the business school, um, I was applying, when I was graduating from my PhD in psychology, I was applying for mostly psychology uh, professor positions, assistant professors in psychology departments, and I had had some interviews. But then I ended up interviewing at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management. They have a center there called the Dispute Resolution Research Center. And that was the first time I had any exposure to business or uh, this field of organizational behavior where I, have, uh, I am now. And it was because of my work on conflict and studying you know, how groups make decisions. And once I... Um, so then I interviewed at uh, the Dispute Resolution Research Center, and I was hired for a two-year position there, a postdoc visiting professor position. And that's when I sort of learned about this whole area of organizational behavior, which is using the methods of psychology and sociology and other social science research methods to conduct experiments and surveys to study problems in organizations, as well as in our social lives more generally. 
Um, and, and from there, um, I developed my research program on moral character and honesty um, has been a more recent focus. Um, and, and sort of how I got into this area in terms of the relevance, you said, how do you convince a, a business school to hire you? I think it was through studying and teaching negotiations. So the course that I was hired to teach at Northwestern University when I made the transition out of psychology was an elective for MBA students, um, negotiations. And negotiations are a skill that everyone needs in all aspects of their life. It, you know, it's relevant in business. Um, there's a lot we can learn from the psychology and the background that I had, my expertise, um, that we can apply towards how, understanding how to negotiate better. And, it, and it's relevant to questions about honesty. You know, should you, how much should you disclose in a negotiation? What are the consequences if you lie? And, uh, you know, what are the short-term versus long-term uh, costs or rewards for, you know, ethical or unethical behavior, reputations, all of these, um, uh, all of these different kind of questions that over the course of my career, I've started to study more. Um, how does moral character influence negotiation? These sorts of topics. Uh, it was sort of at that intersection, I, I think, why I was, um, you know, when I interviewed at Carnegie Mellon, they they saw this uh, potential and, and that I could teach courses to business students on negotiations and, and conduct research in that area. Um, and that has expanded over the course of my career to other topics um, in terms of managing people and teams and organizational behavior more generally. Fantastic. So this is more like an intersection of psychology uh, where, you know, the art of negotiation, the art of group behavior is intersecting with uh, business negotiations, really. That's uh, right. So, exactly. Yeah. So it's applying some of these ideas we know about group interactions, psychology, how individuals communicate, and then, you know, what are the implications uh, of this for uh, business, uh, mm. as well as other settings, too. I mean, it's how people behave at work is not always so different from how they behave in other aspects of their life. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's ultimately a reflection of who they are. So yeah, that makes sense. Um, so uh, I want to know more about how you conduct your research. Uh, and again, coming from a science background, it's usually either experiment-based uh, research uh, or you know computational-based research, right? So people usually write code to simulate certain things, or 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 else they do experiments. Uh, but but in a field like psychology. Um, how do you conduct your research? How do you understand behavioral patterns and how do you derive conclusions from it? So would love to know, uh, would love to get a sneak peek of how you do your research. Yeah, so in, in some ways it's it's all of these methods that you mentioned, but applied to human behavior. And so um, uh, much of my research, I'll use experiments, what we think of as behavioral experiments. When I started out, sort of some of my initial research on conflict, um, was having groups of people come into a lab and into a, 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 a you know a room on campus, and they would uh, interact and sometimes make decisions for small amounts of money. So if you're familiar with the prisoner's dilemma game, um, where you know there's a payoff matrix, and um, in some of my initial studies we would have people it either interact, you know, make decisions one-on-one -on -one to, you know, do they choose to cooperate or compete? Although we didn't use those labels. It's a choice between X and Y, and there's certain um, money associated with each choice for each party. And what was interesting about these early studies was we would compare one-on-one -on -one interactions to groups of three-on-three. -three. And uh, one of the the key insights um, about intergroup conflict versus interpersonal is that when people make decisions in groups, when it's a, you know, three-on-three -three situation, 
um, they're much more competitive, much less cooperative, and, and also more willing sometimes to lie. Um, and I have a paper on how groups would lie more. And so in, in one of these experiments, for example, we'd have an hour long study and we'd, we'd train the participants on, um, you know, what the payoff, the matrix was the choices and how much money and then we'd have for the one-on-one -on -one, they'd come they'd be in their cubicles and they'd come to the center of the suite and they would have a conversation okay i'm gonna choose x and if you choose x we both get more money but then they would go back to their rooms and and when it was one-on-one -on -one, usually they would do what they said they would do they would both cho choose the x choice which is better overall but when it was uh, a group on group situation three on three they would um each each group would send a representative to the center and they would talk, say, oh, yeah, we'll choose X and you choose X, too. And they would say, OK. And then they'd go back to the room. And then once they were in their group uh, behind closed doors, they would choose Y, the competitive choice. Where, um, and what happens if you're familiar with the prisoner's dilemma game is if both groups choose the competitive choice to defect, then it's worse off overall. They both get less uh, you know, outcomes. But it's tempting because if one side chooses the competitive choice, and the other side chooses cooperative, then they can get more. And, and so that was sort of how my, the initial experiments I did as part of my PhD, where um, it was groups um, making decisions in a lab for small amounts of money. Um, and, and, and coupled with that, what we would also look at is we'd give each person, each participant, different questionnaires to fill out um, about their personality, about, you know, different aspects about themselves. And um, and then so in my studies, it was often a combination of looking at sometimes experimental manipulation. So people making a decision either as a group or versus an individual. But then we'd also look at characteristics of the person. Um, and that's what how I started study, getting into morality and moral character. Um, and in particular, this trait that I've come to call guilt proneness. Would people feel bad about um, doing the wrong thing? You know, would you feel bad if you lied to the, the other team, for example? And, and through studying that, we kind of looked at um, individual differences that we would use survey data to to measure as well as different manipulations that we might conduct in the experiment um, and so if i look now looking back so those were studies i did 20 years ago when i was first starting out in my phd and then if i look at the different other studies i've done through my career it's been a, a combination of some experiments like that in the laboratory but then um, also doing surveys um, for example, a, a recent project, we surveyed lawyers about their beliefs about negotiation and moral character, you know, people's thoughts about honesty. And so that was correlational survey data that we would analyze and do different statistical tests, um, you know, regression models, uh, things along those lines. Um, and, and then in, in some other projects, it would be similar to that, but we would survey people over time. Um, and so one of my current projects is looking at law students beliefs about honesty in negotiation and how that may change over time. So we're serving uh, law students three years, over the course of three years. So we surveyed law students at 15 law schools last fall, um, about 2,000 law students. And then in January, February of this coming year, we will contact them again. And, um, and then a year later, we'll also contact them again and send them a 15-minute survey. Uh, and so using different um, statistical analyses, trying to look at changes and how do beliefs change over time. Uh, so uh, uh, kind of recapping just a combination of experiments in the lab, sometimes online experiments, um, and then using survey data and different um, 
analyses of that, like regression models, structural equation models is another for those uh, who have a background in psychometrics. <laughs> Excellent. So it's, it's a combination of experiments and statistics. Um, uh, while choosing your, I can just say cohort, I guess, like, you know, the, the group of people who you conduct research on, um, do you take special care on uh, making sure that the data is uh, clean. Uh, and, and the reason why I'm asking this question is um, a lot of these uh, results will be uh, will have um, a great degree of reliance on the kind of demographics you choose, the kind of race you choose, the kind of age group you choose. So uh, walk me through some of that process. Do you, do you make sure uh, you do that? Yes, it's definitely consideration. And, you know, as with any... Any method, any sample, it's going to be limited, and we have to be careful in the conclusions we can draw. Mo uh, most of my research, not all, but most of it is based in the United States and surveying people across the United States. Um, and sometimes I've, sometimes um, I might recruit them from the university or from the the Pittsburgh area where I, I live, where people might take decide. Um, so sometimes students, you know, for course credit, the undergraduates might sign up for studies. But of course, that's limited because undergraduate students are, you know, at Carnegie Mellon are a particular demographic, right? And other times we might um, study people um, in the community who, who would do research studies for pay. And I've recruited people in different neighborhoods in Pittsburgh um, or online where people sign up for, to, take, to do research studies for pay. And then there's various participant pools. Some people may be familiar with Amazon Mechanical Turk, uh, which is a, a research platform where people can sign up, you know, anywhere in the world. But I usually keep it limited to the United States just because that's the um, the region of the world I know the best. Uh, and people can sign up to complete tasks like a 15 minute survey for small amounts of money, you know, a, a dollar or two. And and I've used that um as a way to recruit participants and other similar kinds of participant pools that um, are geared to academics. Um, and then sometimes, uh, and others, if I've had a, a question about a specialized sample, like I mentioned the study with lawyers, in that case, I've, I've tried, um, I've used different methods. So the one with law students, we've recruited, um, we had professors at different law schools across the United States send out a announcement to their students with a link to participate in the survey. Um, we had a lottery for uh, gift cards, um, but it, but it's always a a challenge. I think to, in terms of ensuring that the the people are sort of who they say they are. You know, what does this represent? Does it generalize? You know, if I'm doing research in the United States, and maybe I can get a a cross section of the United States in terms of age and race and and gender and different income levels. Um, does that represent you know other uh, people in other parts of the world? Um, I'd say in, in one, I, I have one study where we tried to do that a little more systematically, where we survey, uh, there was a, about guilt and shame proneness, this scale I had developed, and we wanted to see differences in moral emotions in different parts of the world, um, in terms of values related to individualism and collectivism, um, and how that may kind of play into people's beliefs um, and behaviors when they do something wrong. And in that study, uh, we surveyed people in Pakistan, China. No, sorry, it wasn't Pakistan. So, um, oh, I'm, I'm blanking on it. So it's China, uh, India, the United States, 
and it may have was it Pakistan? I have to look it up. Pakistan mm -hmm. or um, Iran? Um, Iran, I think, was in that study. Um, and, and other research, I know people have contacted me to, to um, use my survey in Pakistan, which is why I was uh, mixing those up. Um, but in that, you know, and then we don't have the whole population, but I, I think how we did it in that study was looking at students in these different areas to because we could sort of uh, equate um, the samples on that. And then in the statistical analyses, um, controlling for things like age to see does age have an impact on our findings um, race to, to the extent we ha might have that information about that um, other demographic characteristics. Um, so it's we're able to uh, control for some uh, differences through you know the question questions we might ask but certainly there's a lot that's unobserved and I'd say how I think of it is I, I think humans across the world are roughly similar in a lot of ways but of course there's there's important differences for any particular research study, I think about the research question and is there a reason to think, you know, theoretically or conceptually that there may be an important difference that we need to look at. Um, so it's a question, you know, would this be the same for men or women? Well, I have to think about that. Well, is there a reason to think men or women would be different on this dimension? I'd say in many cases, men and women are very similar. There's certain areas, certain kinds of decisions we may observe differences. Um, and, you know, same thing for people in different cultures or, or backgrounds. Is there a reason to think that this would not be the same for engineers as it would be for psychology students, for example? And um, and if, I, if there's a good reason to think that people are very different in a way that's relevant to the research question, then we'd want to make sure we have samples from, you know, the, the different populations so we could test that systematically. Hmm. Makes total sense. Yeah, there are always gaps, and I think uh, as you as you take samples across cultures, and not just that, you know, uh, sometimes if you look at a one a particular race here in the U.S., um, let's say the the South Asian population, it's it's usually the more fortunate or or the top level South Asians in South Asia who migrate to the U.S. So that can also sort right. of create some sort of a bias. Uh, and, and to your uh, previous answer on uh, uh, on your research, um, uh, you mentioned about the XY research that you conducted. Uh, that sounded a lot like uh, what happens in elections, right? I mean, in elections, uh, you know, you have a group of uh, seven, eight people discussing and majority of them are, let's say, Democrats or Republicans, and you sort of don't want to be the odd one out. And then but when it comes to the ballot, it's just you and the ballot and you sometimes make uh, a decision that is more rational to you or that seems more rational to you. So that that happens a lot in elections. So I just got to yeah. mind that. Yes, it's, it's very interesting that, uh, that you raise that because you know, some of the research in this area is looking at what happens when people are identifiable in terms of their vote versus not. Um, and then what happens if you're identifiable just to the members of your in-group, so just say to the members of your own political party uh, versus to an out-group? Um, and, you know, that like how does accountability affect your decision? Um, when might accountability make to your in-group? Um, that could make you more extreme in some ways, you know, um, especially if you think that, you know, the other side is um, – it poses a threat. So, for example – um, you know, some of the work using the prisoners dilemma game um, and studying leadership when, you know, leaders are independent and they can communicate with the other side, you know, the other representative one on one, they may be able to come up with a, a negotiated agreement or some solution that's more cooperative that might be better for the long term. 
However, then they have to go back to their constituents and, and tell them about what they, you know, negotiated. And then, you know, if they, often the constituents might be more extreme, you know, the, in group, the group members say, no, we, we can't cooperate. We can't give any concessions. And, and sometimes those agreements fall apart because, you know, once people are, um, you know, behind closed doors and it's more private. Uh, and I think we see, and so even though uh, psychologists and, and people in organizational behavior have studied this in laboratory settings, you know, on, with the money um, and decisions like that, I do think it represents some of these dynamics that you raise about what happens in, in the real world when it's very high stakes. And, um, and certainly in politics, we see this now and how difficult it is for um, different groups who have a history and a past to be able to come to any kind of agreement, even if the leaders independently may be able to come up with some kind of framework, um, but to get buy-in uh, is, is really difficult. Yeah, that is so true. Um, uh, I think human beings are just super complex and uh, what our generations have faced in the past and all of that plays a role in how we deal with uh, with people as well. Uh, and, and it's completely different when we are all by ourselves, which is probably why um, anonymity is sometimes a good shield, right? I mean, you see these fake accounts being um, uh, brutally honest, so to speak, uh, uh, speaking their mind. But at the same time, when it's when it's a face-to-face -face conversation, when there is so much at stake, they sort of mellow down uh, a little bit. Yeah. Um, it's, it's definitely a double-edged sword, I think, in terms <laughs> of the anonymity can bring out the worst in people, in, in, as we sometimes see on social media, but also sometimes that frees people up to, sh to share things that are important that they might not otherwise feel comfortable. So, you know, certainly I think we, we can think of examples in both directions uh, yeah. of how that uh, might play uh, out. Yeah, absolutely. I, I briefly hinted at uh, brutally honest, and then that makes me want to ask you uh, we use this term right brutally honest and it's sometimes overused um, does honesty have to be brutal uh, what are your thoughts on that or does honesty have to be more empathetic more considerate um, because sometimes when when people are honest the the recipient or the person who is getting that feedback or comment uh, is not taking it in the best possible way so uh, mm -hmm. Tell me more about that. Uh, tell me more about, uh, you know, how can we be honest, but at the same time be considerate or empathetic? Mm -hmm. So I do not think uh, honesty has to be brutal. Uh, and I think we can differentiate the content of what people say. You know, are we saying what we believe to be true? Are we disclosing information so that our conversation partners understand the truth? And I think we can differentiate that with, you know, how uh, the style with which we deliver that information. Is it uh, disrespectful, rude, um, inconsiderate or not, right? And so I can be honest and rude or inconsiderate, but I could also lie and be rude or inconsiderate. They're different dimensions. And the honesty in and of itself, I don't think has to be brutal, um, that it is possible for us to uh, communicate with what I've called benevolent honesty, where you're promoting the well-being of the other side, yet at the same time still providing them with truthful information, you know, information that might be useful for them to know. Um, and so I, I think we assume there has to be this tension that if I'm honest, it's also going to be harmful for the other person. It's going to make them uncomfortable. They won't want to hear what I have to say. And what I have found in my research is that assumptions often wrong. Um, that we 
underestimate the value of the honest, truthful information that we share that the other person might want to know what we have to say and learn. Because if we don't share that, then they never have a chance to learn. And, you know, over time, that usually can cause problems. So when I think of this idea of brutal honesty, the reason that we think of it that way is we're, we're often over estimating the harm or we're focusing a lot on the short-term awkwardness of the conversation. We're not very well calibrated to how the other side might respond. Um, and in addition to my own work, there's you know quite a, um, a lot of other researchers now who have demonstrated these similar findings in different contexts about feedback, about um, even about positive things like compliments and, and gratitude and you know things that we would think we would um, have a better sense of that, how pe people might be happy to hear this information, but we um, mispredict how others will respond. Um, and, and I can tell you a little bit more uh, later about my research on honesty, and that also kind of talks about some of the methods, but, um, but basically we found when we had people be honest in their everyday lives, they anticipated it would be much worse than it actually was. Um, they anticipated it would have to be brutal, you know, that the their conversation partners would be upset. And then when we had them do this, you know, we found the exact opposite that um, these experiences were, even when they were difficult conversations, helped their relationships as opposed to harm them. Hmm. And sometimes uh, giving feedback also is dependent on how well we know the other person. So let's say if it's a work relationship versus a friendship versus someone you just met, um, you know, we sometimes think about how they will take it uh, and, uh, and there are some people who have really short temper, right? So it may affect our relationship with them going forward. So we may just keep things to ourselves. Um, so that can sometimes happen. And and it also has a lot to do with culture. I mean, uh, uh, I am a South Asian, I'm an Indian. So, uh, you know, it was okay uh, for, a, for a long time for people to say that, uh, hey, you know, you have put on some weight uh, since the last time we saw you. And it was... It was completely okay during those days, but now obviously there is a lot more awareness. Um, and I feel like when you give an, an honest feedback, um, the feedback should help the other person because in this case, uh, when, when you say that they have put on some weight, they can't really do anything about it immediately, right? So uh, it can hurt them. Uh, so is there a soft line versus... Uh, honest feedback uh, leading to some improvement in the short term versus something that can't be done anything about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, the purpose of feedback is to help the person learn and grow and change, uh, you know, and so it should be focused on that person's goals for it to be effective, um, you know, and, and should be focused on behaviors critical for that person to achieve their goals. So with something like weight, it's, it's an interesting example because in different cultures across the world, there's very different norms and expectations about how acceptable it is to comment on a person's weight. In the United States, it's it's often seen as somewhat unacceptable, maybe within your very close family, um, but in other parts of the world, you know, I've had uh, stories from friends and and others um, where it's very matter of fact, it's not so taboo as it is in the U.S. Um, and and it's interesting that you comment how you've noticed things change. Maybe maybe in India, things are changing. Um, yeah, it's, it's and, a lot yeah. to do with Western influence as well. Uh, I feel like if if media or globalization did not have such a huge impact, maybe things would have just remained the way they, they were and people would just not have this notion of fat shaming or it 
it is bad or I have to feel bad about it. So yeah, we never know. But yeah, things are definitely changing and there is more voice and there is more of talk about fat shaming and how it is bad and how it yeah. can cause mental impact and all of that. Yeah. yeah and, and so this point you raise, um, it, uh, much of my work has focused on this difference between guilt and shame. And, and it's very relevant here, and especially with something like feedback and feedback about weight, which is something many people might feel shame about. And, and so shame is when you think there's something about yourself that's flawed and it, it's hard to change. And often if we're, you know, someone, if we do something wrong or, or some aspect of ourselves is a negative aspect is publicized, you know, it's in public and other people know we might feel this shame. And the example you're giving, you know, body shaming or, you know, fat shaming, things along those lines, people might feel there's nothing they can do about it. It's just who they are. And that this is some aspect of themselves that's flawed. And that's very different than what, um, when I think of guilt or this emotion that's very focused on specific behaviors, right? I've done something wrong or I made a mistake. Um, you know, I, I, I haven't been exercising as much as I should, you know, that's a very specific behavior and we can change our behavior. And so when we think of feedback, it's so important to give feedback on specific behaviors as opposed to global things about the person that, um, that's hard for them to change. So saying, you know, you, you're fat or you've gained a lot of weight, you know, it's generally not helpful as opposed to um, feedback about how they might better stick to an exercise plan or adjust their diet in, in ways that are actionable. Um, and that's, of course, assuming that their goal is to lose weight, um, which it may not be, right? So the feedback should be tailored to that person's goals. Um, now, on the other hand, I'd say I'm, I am a fan of directness and I, and I think if there is a situation where the the person may not realize, you know, that they're not making healthy choices, then it, it can be important for those who are close to them to maybe help them, um, give them some feedback about the different choices to help them learn. But sometimes with, um, with weight in particular, people may know about their problems that they have. Um, and so that doesn't mean you know, people need, uh, it should be publicized and make them feel bad about themselves. So I think there is this, some delicate balance between helping people learn by, you know, telling, giving them feedback about what you're observing. Um, but the more it's focused on behavior, it's going to make it better for that person because there's hopefully something they can do about it mm -hmm. um, as opposed to just making them feel bad about themselves. And that's shame, which is not helpful, right? Shame tends to make us want to hide anger, you know, a lot of negative emotions. Yeah, I, I hear a lot about asking the right questions as well, uh, uh, which is pretty similar in, in some context as to uh, giving the right feedback. You know, a lot of people, especially people who are like motivational speakers or who have achieved a lot in their lives, they hate it when someone asks them a blind question, uh, like a blanket question, uh, like for a 20 year old graduating out of college, what advice would you give on what business yeah. to start these days? And, and I've heard multiple people say this, that, you know, uh, give me a specific question that I can answer because yeah. sometimes this, these blanket questions will have blanket answers and they, people are not going to get any value out of it. Uh, so it is also important, I think, to ask the right questions and, and sometimes that can help you uh, help others also be honest and give right feedback or, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah, it's interesting about, honesty in particular because when you think of honesty we have what the communicator thinks about what they're sharing are they communicating what they believe to be true 
And then we have the perceptions of the, the target of the communication or the listeners. Do, what judgments do they make? And depending on the assumptions um, people have, you could come up with, you could be a lot of asymmetries. And to your point, if it's a very high level question, then maybe the listener is like, they didn't answer the question, but for the communicator that they're answering the best they could. And you can imagine these situations where each party has very different views of, was it honest? Was it a good answer? Because if the question's too vague or too high level, um, each side, you know, the person asking the question may have in their mind, you know, a, a different, um, you know, they're looking for something different and the communicator's not quite sure how to respond um, and and so I think your point is a very good one, especially when it comes to feedback. You know, do you have anything to share? Is is very open, and maybe that's good if you want to see where the, you know, the person you're asking will take it. But if you do want to get their insights on a specific topic, then it's important to have more uh, precise questions and follow up questions and things along those lines. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Tab, I want to move now to honesty in a workplace. Um, and I think it's really important because, uh, you know, we sometimes spend uh, eight to 10 hours uh, of our, uh, you know, major part of our week at, at work. And we deal uh, a lot with our coworkers and our managers and direct report reports, if, if you have any. Uh, and, uh, and I feel like honesty and feedback is, is a lot important in, um, uh, at a works workplace. Um, and, you know, I I have had this thought for a while, and I've read a few people talk about it. Um, that you know, one on ones with your manager and how important they are. Um, a lot of the times in one on ones or weekly one on ones or biweekly one on ones, people usually just talk about work, and sometimes they don't open up about the the feelings that they have or. Uh, you know, lack of growth opportunities or uh, how they can go up the ladder and things like that. Uh, do you think one-on-ones with uh, your manager is um, is one of those rare moments in a week or a once in two weeks where you can actually open up uh, and how should people go about it? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think it matters a lot about what is the relationship and, you know, in terms of whether they can open up, uh, you know, there's a lot of complexities there and what the relationship, what the expectations for that relationship and what's important to share versus what's, what's less important. Um, I think now what I see is many of our interactions are over zoom like this one or, or, or teams or some kind of other virtual platform. Um, and also, you know, we have very structured sort of calendar, like maybe we have 30 minutes here and 30 minutes over here when we have, um, interactions like this, it's often very structured, right? There's an agenda and we go through and we're going to talk, we have a you have 15 minutes with your manager or 30 minutes and, um, and you can talk about other issues, but usually you talk about the, the aspect, the, the things that are on the agenda and not much else because it doesn't necessarily seem like it's the right time. And, and then, so then the question, well, what is the right time to bring up more, um, other issues, you, you know, and people need space to do that. And, and, you know, you can have small talk on a, a video call, but usually that's um, not always, you know, the right space. And th so thinking when, how do we, as managers or as employees, create the space to have these conversations that you're not sh quite sure where it will lead. And I think that's part of it, because if it's not clear how it fits into the agenda, or how it fits into the, the specific tasks that you're working on, you know, maybe people don't bring it up because they don't think it's relevant, but, you know, there could be... Um, 
in some cases, you know, it could lead to different ideas to explore. Maybe you don't realize someone has some expertise or connection that could be helpful. And so I think one-on-ones can be an opportunity to share a little bit more um, and maybe sharing some things that don't seem directly relevant, but, you know, could be interesting to discuss. Um, my my mother's a school psychologist. Uh, she's retired, but she used to uh, teach parenting classes. And um, at the time, it, it, there was, you know, a big focus on quality time. And what she always shared that has stuck with me that I, I think is relevant to your question is that you can't force quality time, not with an employee and a, and a manager any more than with children. But if you spend enough quantity time, like, you know, like a long enough time, enough quantity, then eventually you can get to some good quality time. And and I, it, it, this has always stuck with me in the sense that you can't always force these, you know, good interactions. Um, but if you can spend enough time and you ask the right questions and you set a space where people feel comfortable, um, then you can get to the the good quality time and where people might feel comfortable sharing um, information that you know is not part of the the directly about the task that they're working on. Um, but again, if there's if there's a tight schedule and it's near deadline, right? That's not a time when people are going to be open to to this. So thinking carefully about when is a good time to get a coffee, um, get a drink, have lunch, you know, and, and build that in so you can, um, you know, strengthen the relationship. Yeah, I think the point raised by your mom is fantastic, and I I have had this feeling as well uh, when people say, especially in relationships, right? People say that. Uh, you know, my love language is quality time. Uh, you can't, you can't just be like, you know, I'm going to give you quality time for 30 minutes. Um, uh, and and the longer the time you give to the other person, sometimes that automatically develops into a quality time. Uh, so I, I completely concur with what your mom said. I think that's a, that's a fantastic point. Yeah. Um, that brings me to relationships uh, and honesty and, and feedback. Um, and I feel like, this is a very important and a very sort of fragile space because uh, tensions can brew when someone gives an honest feedback because a certain person has been raised a certain way uh, for the longest time and then they are starting to spend time with another person who has been brought up in a completely different background. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, someone may have had a very peaceful childhood uh, where they have not seen any violence or abuse as a, as a child and they think that that is the norm. And when they meet a partner or they start dating a partner who has gone through a lot, uh, you know, the, the whole dynamics can change. Uh, and sometimes giving feedback can be like walking on eggshells as to, you know, how the other person is thinking about my feedback and so on. Um, so honesty in relationships, I feel like plays a huge role. And, um, uh, you know, how what are some of your findings have you delved into that space at all and uh, what have been some of your learnings from from looking at honesty and feedback just from a relationship point of view uh so it's a great question and i think we when we are receiving feedback we're listening to what's being said but we're also trying to make sense of what are the person's intentions why are they sharing this like what do they really mean and when we're the communicator, when we're the feedback giver, we focus a lot on, am I saying the right thing? You know, um, and and I think there can be this mismatch. And, and because of we come into these situations, these conversations with all of our, our prior history, our culture, our experiences, what does it mean to express disagreement? Um, and but 
I do think people can find ways to communicate even very difficult information in a way that is supportive, that communicates their positive intentions towards the person. And, and we have to be, or it, it's help, we don't have to be, but it's helpful if we are more explicit about that, that the reason I'm sharing this with you is because I think it could be helpful for you to know that I care a lot about you. And I know this is difficult information that you, um, but I, I think it's important. And here is how we can work on this together, you know, communicating that support. Um, and, you know, this sense that we have to walk on eggshells um, and then we shouldn't share something I mean, with someone, I think it can in the long term be very damaging because um, it's assuming we know what's better for that person. It, it can be very paternalistic, like, you know, they don't, uh, you know, they can't handle it and I'm going to shield them from difficult truths and not share that. But, you know, the longer that goes on, then that robs them of the opportunity um, and autonomy uh, opportunity to learn and, you know, agency to make their own decisions. And so what, what I think when we're communicating, deciding how should I communicate, um, how's the person going to react, thinking that, about how we can communicate our positive intentions and make sure the person understands that the reason we are, you know, telling them something that may be difficult to hear is because we do care a lot about them. And if the the feedback giver or the communicator can share that, then that can go a long way. Because one of the big problems raised um, by the different cultural backgrounds, the different experiences, is that people may have very different assumptions. You know, like if I, I'm very comfortable with um, disagreement and conflict, and that's okay. And I don't, you know, I see it as engagement. You know, so my my background, I have a, I grew up in the Philadelphia area, a Jewish family, and we interrupt each other, overlapping conversations, and it's all seen as engagement. Like you care because you're listening. And, you know, if you didn't care, you would just sit there silently. Whereas other people may see that exact same behavior and say, oh, that's so disrespectful to, um, you know, to disagree or to interrupt. And, um, and, and you know, and I've experienced this in, in my life and some of my relationships where, the behavior I see as a very positive signal because it's me being engaged and caring and asking questions can be interpreted as rude and disrespectful, um, as not listening, not understanding. And, and we have these challenges because the same behavior, same communication may be viewed very differently. And we infer all these assumptions. Oh, the reason they, you know, interrupted or they asked me, you know, said this uh, communicated disagreement is because they don't like me. They don't care about me. They don't respect me. And then the other side may think, the exact opposite. Um, and so the more we can communicate our intentions and assumptions and make the other side understand that we do want to help them and that's why we're sharing this and that's why we're asking these questions or um, that can help calibrate uh, each side a little bit better because without it, then people just, you know, they have different assumptions, different interpretations, and maybe it's never addressed and it escalates from there. Mm. Yeah, I think you bring up a very interesting point about uh, uh, intent and uh, this coming from a good place, right? Because uh, it has happened with me when my parents give me some feedback, I know that they mean good for me. Uh, and so I don't get as offended as someone else giving me uh uh, feedback uh, and, and to your point about um, you know interrupting between conversations you know it has happened a lot with me where people have said that you know don't speak in in between you know or, or while I'm finishing a point but what happens often is when they are saying something uh, you want to ask a follow-up question and sometimes if you wait all the all the way till 
they finish the sentence or finish the entire block of conversation, um, you may lose thread and you have to ask it right there, right then. And like you said, you know, it is an indication that the person is engaging and they are just not uh, listening for the sake of it. And I think, uh, I think the word conversation means conversation, right? It's two people getting being involved. So I think it's really important for uh, people to be uh, okay with uh, minor interruptions. Obviously, it can get annoying if it's too much, but I think there is a fine line between uh, communicating effectively and uh, uh, paying attention and asking follow-up questions. So uh, yeah, you, you bring a fantastic point, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting, right? There is this fine line. And for different people, that line may be in different places, right? Because all of us want the people we're talking to to be listening to us, to be engaged in the conversation. But what does it look like and what inferences we're making? It, you know, we may have very different expectations depending on our um, family background, cultural background, other experiences. And and I think this it's an interesting challenge for us to navigate when we communicate with people who are, you know, very different from us. And also in different contexts, like you said, at home, if you believe your parents have positive intentions, then when they say something, it may feel very different than a manager. And sometimes it kind of go into some of your earlier questions. Some, if we have a good relationship with our manager and, a, you know, we feel they're very supportive, then we may be, when they provide us feedback, it may be experienced very differently than if we had a manager or a coworker who we don't have that trust um, and positive relationship with Um and you know the same content, the same communication can mean very different things depending on who's saying it, what's the history, um, and what are the different assumptions we have about their intentions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you 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 brought about manager, and I think I I missed asking you that question. I think we touched upon the fact that how an employee can spend quality time with the manager and find a space to ask tough questions or give. Uh, feedback or raise concerns. Uh, but speaking from the manager's side, um, uh, you know, some sometimes manager can hesitate uh, giving negative feedback uh, about people who are performing uh, not to their potential, so to speak. Um, so as a manager, what are some of the challenges? Because, you know, if, if you have someone who is performing 5x to their potential, you know, uh, ex being extremely efficient, extremely productive, then conversations are a breeze, but sometimes managers also have to make tough conversations to people who are not performing up to their potential. So uh, how should managers deal with it? Should they just say that, hey, you're not up to the mark? Uh, <laughs> what do you think? So what do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the hard one challenge for managers is figuring out why, you know, if a person and um, employee is not performing well, is it a motivation issue or is it an ability issue or some combination? Because the feedback and the advice or, you know, the plans may be very different if, you know, is it that you need to motivate them and kind of get them to understand the importance of a particular task that they're not doing um, or, you know, put the effort in in some way? Or is it they really just don't know how? And, you know, and, and so if, say, um, some, and sometimes it, it, it's hard to tell. So with organizational change, for example, sometimes you might get people opposed to the change. And on the surface, it might look like it's a motivational issue that they just don't like like it. But it could be that they just don't know how to implement, um, you know, whatever the change is. And so for the manager, you know, it's it's asking questions and I think finding out, you know, how does the person see the problem, trying to, to figure out, you know, what do they need to be successful and then tailoring the feedback in a way that can help them get there. And, and I think that's that's a challenge. So if the 
you know, if the person as a manager, sometimes, or if we get to a point in our career where we've been very successful and sometimes things that we've learned to do things over time or things maybe always came easily in, in certain skills, how do we train another person to develop those skills is, um, it, you know, it's difficult. And, and so I'm thinking about this a lot lately with the PhD students I mentor and teaching them how to write and, you know, how to conduct experiments, how to do statistical analyses. There's lots of different skills. And writing in particular, I think, is, is a hard one because um, at this point in my career, you know, I'm a, I've written a lot. I, I've developed a, a you know, high level of skills in this area. But to communicate and teach another person how to do that is not so easy. So I can give feedback. You know, this, this doesn't make sense or something or do it differently here. You know, or I can try and model it, uh, you know, um, and that's very effortful. And sometimes as a manager, we might think, oh, we're giving very clear feedback because we've told them what the problem is. But there still can be this barrier where the person doesn't really understand how to address it. Maybe they can see the problem or maybe they can't. And often when you have these power dynamics, you know, the, the employee may not even tell you that they don't understand what you're saying. Um, and um, and it can be very complicated to figure out how much of it is just motivational if it's an ability situation Will they be able to get there? What kind of mentoring will it require? You know, what's the best way to get them to build skills? Um, and you know, and, and is it worth it? Maybe it's just ultimately not the right fit or position for them, or maybe they will ultimately grow into a high performer. Um, and so all of that is sort of the challenges that managers have to face in figuring out how do they figure out specifically what's holding this person back from, you know, high performance, and then can they provide the feedback about specific behaviors that the person can do to enact change? Um, but that's of course um, requires that the person wants to change and wants to do this. And when you have a person who's very unhappy in their job, for example, you know, it may look like um, they may just not want to put in the effort um, and maybe it's not the right fit for them, but then other places, someone's maybe very motivated. They just don't know how to, to build the skills. Hmm. So, so it looks like different kinds of um, uh, poor performers need different kinds of feedback. Uh, you know, if someone is being a pure slack, they need to be given some direct feedback or, you know, probably uh, shown their way out. And if someone else is motivated and has the skills, but just um, the lack of direction is what is keeping them from performing at their best, then that needs to be addressed uh, pretty differently. And and you spoke about, you know, developing uh, a certain amount of skills over time with your writing and, and having this difficulty in communicating. And I've seen this with a lot of people who have who have out of ordinary skills in, in their specific field of interest, um, is that uh, you know, things that come naturally to them, it is difficult for them to understand that they may not come as naturally to the other people, which is where probably this communication gap or this difficulty in making others understand comes from. And and it happens a lot in sports when an extremely skilled player becomes the captain, uh, he does not quite understand why it is not as obvious to uh, someone else in the team. So yeah, just just wanted to make that point. Yeah, I think it's interesting, right? When something is intuitive, I mean, like we don't have to think very much about it. It just comes naturally. And, and you know, then when for, for someone who's an expert where it came very naturally, then they get them to think backwards to what it was like when they couldn't do that. In some cases, maybe they all, with the, the athlete, maybe they could always do that. And, and you know, um, 
I have young children and to seeing children sort of vary a lot in terms of what comes naturally to them, both with sports and athletics, but also academically. And then to think about, okay, how do you build those skills when it doesn't come naturally? Sometimes it's um, the person who, for whom it came naturally is not always the, um, the, the best one to be able to teach that, that skill sometimes, as opposed to someone who also struggled, who then was able to learn it and, and know what worked for them. Um, I think it can go both ways. You know, a person who has, is an expert and has developed those skills also may understand things at a deep level and be able to communicate that. But there, it's certainly uh, not always the case because sometimes if someone, you know, it's just so natural to them, they don't even think about how they would uh, go about doing it if it wasn't. So. Yeah. You bring an interesting point about, uh, you know, thinking about a time when it did not come naturally to you. I think if someone could do that, then they will probably be able to understand why it isn't coming as naturally to the other person. So yeah, that's, that's one, one good thing to take away. Um, uh, you know, I, I now I want to move into public policy, uh, law, and international politics, and how honesty plays a role there. Um, and I feel like, you know, we as human beings have achieved this level of technological advancement or, uh, you know, self-sufficiency in terms of food and produce uh, because of global trade. And it's it's amazing how global trade has worked over the years. You know, some international leaders sign a few papers and uh, people are honestly adhering to the laws uh, when they could easily break it and there is not much of accountability. Uh, I mean, obviously, there will be backlash and uh, export control and tariffs imposed later. But, you know, usually people tend to adhere to it. Uh, and, and that's one side of honesty. And the other side of honesty is uh, in, in politics where people blatantly lie about some facts uh, and, and sometimes they are not even accountable. So uh, what is your take on politicians not being honest and uh, what can be done to improve? I mean, if anything can be done to improve because there is such less accountability and them not being honest has a lot more impact uh, on, on, on the general population as compared to, you know, us being dishonest at work or, you know, uh, you get the point, right? I mean, it, it it has not much at, it does not have as much at stake as compared to them being dishonest. So, um, yeah, it's a great question. Um, po politics and political science is not my area of expertise. <laughs> so I, I don't uh, know that I have any particular insights um, into, into those issues. But what I, I can say is, Honesty is a value that people across the world have in in their interpersonal relationships, especially. Um, and you know, organizations say they, they want honesty. You know, so um, when it comes to politics, and you know, these examples we see, um, you know, it feels like a lot. You know, in, in recent years, where honesty does not seem to be a, a very high value, I think it's when honesty is perceived to um, be uh, antithetical or work against other things we care about. We care about loyalty. We care about our group winning, whatever, you know, we're trying to win. And with politics, um, when it's experienced um, as win-lose, you know, the zero sum, and especially like in the United States, we have two two political parties. And, you know, if you're, you don't want, you don't want yours to lose, then, you know, like, Sure, like all else being equal, maybe the politician would like to be honest, but if it, they feel like they're under threat and dishonesty is going to help 
their party or them personally achieve their goals, then right, then that's a challenge, uh, and people might not prioritize honesty. And same, and then for like what are, then what are the consequences of that? And are we allowing dishonesty? And I think some people will, you know, what happens when there's this tension? Well, I, if I might forgive dishonesty, even though people in general don't like dishonesty, but they might forgive it if they think it's helping their their group or their party um, or the politician that they on their team, you know, achieve mm. their goals. And so um, this win-lose mindset, I think, poses a real challenge. Um, and, and I think from my own research where, although I haven't studied politicians, what's relevant um, is work I've done on what we call game framing. If you view the situation as a game, and what that means, it's having a mindset where it's um, zero sum, you know, adversarial win lose, um, and the the goal is to win at all cost. And once you couple that belief with um, a sense that the rules are arbitrary and artificial, right? It's just a game. How I behave in this context, say politics or negotiation, if I, how I behave here doesn't say anything about who I am, right? It doesn't reflect my character. And when you have those two beliefs together, when um, it's adversarial, you know, win-lose, win at all cost, and how I act in this one context doesn't say anything about who I am as a person, about my moral character, my morality, ethics, those two beliefs to, um, combined, I, I think of as game framing, and that is a recipe for dishonesty and, um, and unethical behavior more generally. And so... Whether that's applies to politics, I, I, you know, I can't say, but I, right. I do see elements of it where if a politician's like, no, the goal is to win and it's adversarial and, and you know, we have to protect ourselves and how I, you know, speak about this or how I act as a politician doesn't say anything about who I am as a person, that can give rise to a lot of dishonesty. Um, yeah. And, and I've studied that in the negotiation context, not necessarily with politicians, but those same beliefs may hold true in, in politics as well. Yeah, and I think this whole fear of guilt or shame uh, can also, you know, um, make people be more honest than dishonest. And I think democracy is is a fantastic process that way because if someone gets exposed that they lied, uh, they may have some consequence in the next election or something. So, so that is also we'll see. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> I, I, and then it's like what, what, right? So guilt and shame they certainly can they motivate moral behavior, right? But what do we see as moral and when it's this intergroup context, coming back to where we were at the beginning, when it's like this us versus them and our standards are different. So maybe it's you know, people don't even feel ashamed because they feel like I was being a good group member. I was being loyal. I was helping you know, the people who I'm close with. And it's not so clear in, um, in those situations what, you know, at least for people in those situations, sometimes they think, oh, the right thing to do actually is to do the best for my group, even if it means compromising on other moral values like honesty. Um, but, you know, we'll see. I, I tend to prioritize <laughs> honesty, uh, but it does seem that it is one value among many that people may hold. Mm, fantastic. Uh, Taya, uh, thank you so much for, for your time. Uh, I think we barely scratched the surface when it comes to your research. I think you have you have done extremely well and I've listened to a lot of your uh, episodes, especially the one with Shankar Vedantam on Hidden Brain. Uh, what a fascinating conversation. Uh, and in that episode, I remember you uh, quoting a few examples from your childhood and from your growing up days where you were brutally honest. So <laughs> I want to give you this opportunity or 
you know, it's kind of selfish, I guess. Um, give me honest feedback about how you liked this episode or if you didn't. <laughs> uh, I, well, I, my honest uh, evaluation is I like the episode very much. I appreciate the questions and um, everything we spoke about. I have nothing brutal to say uh, at this time. So uh, maybe, maybe, I don't know. We'll see at the comments or your, what your listeners think if uh, they, they can give us some feedback, I suppose, on what we didn't cover or what comments they, uh, they liked or didn't like. Absolutely. Uh, well, well, Taya, thank you so much uh, for for your time. Uh, I know it's a busy weekday <laughs> afternoon, but uh, you took out time in 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 between to to speak to me. So it means a lot. Uh, thank you so much, and all the very best for for research. And looking forward to all the other interviews that you do over time. Oh, thank you very much. I, it was a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Bye.